Hello and welcome to episode 228 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Happy Wednesday, Ian. Happy Wednesday, Jason. How are you, sir? I'm good. I had to think about what day of the week it was because we almost recorded on Tuesday again. Yeah, we've been switching it up the past couple of weeks, but we're on the Wednesday schedule today. And then a, a programming note, we will not be on the Wednesday schedule next week because I will be on vacation. I didn't know we allowed that anymore. I mean, it's short and it's fast, not very far away, but I'm taking what I can get. So we will not have a new show next week. But we'll have a little recap of, of how things have gone so far this year. Like we do, I think we did the same thing last August. So it's the week off. And so uh, if you're going on vacation listening to the podcast, hopefully you can enjoy the week off as well. But this week, we have a lot of news to get through first before any vacations happen. And we begin with the closure of Niger's airspace in the Sahel in Africa and the importance of this for commercial aviation is not necessarily the closure of the airspace, though that is significant for the variety of flights that do operate to Niamey. And the airspace closure follows a coup that took place at the end of July. The president has been placed under house arrest for the past few weeks, and the, the military has taken control of the country. And in the past few days, they closed the airspace because of the threat of the use of military force to undo the coup by ECOWAS countries, which are a collective of African states that are bringing military might to bear possibly to reverse the effects of the coup. So in anticipation of any military use of force in Niger, the coup-led government has closed all of Niger's airspace. Well, I guess that's good. That's what you – well, not what is going on is good. It's certainly not. But closing of airspace before any potential action occurs is what you want to see. A prudent step for sure. As this impacts commercial aviation, it makes it a whole lot more difficult to get between Southern Africa and Europe for the airlines that operate in that airspace. Or Western Africa and and the Middle East is a huge route as well. Though there was already a bit of a choke point there. Right, right. So the issue isn't the fact that Niger's airspace is closed. It's the fact that Niger's airspace is closed in addition to Sudan and Libya. Libya's airspace is open, but European airlines for the most part can't fly in the Tripoli FIR. The US, Canada, France, UK, Germany, amongst others have said to their airlines, no, you can't fly there. It's not safe. And so instead of flying the most direct route through what would likely be Western Sudan through Chad into Libya, they've had to route around Sudan and Libya and and go through Niger. Now that Niger's airspace is closed, all routes move even further west or further east if you're going to fly through Ethiopia, up through the Red Sea, and across Egypt, depending on which way you want to go with things. But that puts pressure on those two two routes that are left now as far as the, the most efficient routes, which are not at all efficient, but it's the best airlines can do at the moment. 
Yeah, and this happened rather suddenly. I think it was three nights ago at this point, maybe August 6th, I believe, or, or actually, no, it was yes. before that. August 6th, maybe? August 7th? Yes. Six. A couple of days ago, it happened very suddenly. All the European airlines were happily flying their, their evening departure bank from South of Africa or Central Africa up to Europe, and suddenly a huge chunk of airspace closed, and they had a bunch of decisions to make for flights. Could they continue on by making a, a very sudden left turn and deviate around the now closed airspace and up to Africa? Some flights were able to do that if they had enough fuel and the, the endurance to do that. Other flights planned to divert to somewhere in Ghana or I think Nigeria or other Western Africa countries gassed up and headed back north. Some flights canceled outright and some flights had the very unfortunate outcome of returning all the way back to their origin, of which there were a number of flights, specifically uh, BA and its A380 had like a <laughs> another one of those epically long 13-hour flights to nowhere where I think they had a couple flights out of... Cape Town and Johannesburg, which which made it all the way up to the closed airspace, had to turn around and go all the way back because there were at that point there were issues of diversion airports were already overcrowded and you can't just pop in an A three eighty wherever you want to unannounced and, and be accommodated. So unfortunately they had to return all the way to South Africa. Days of delay, real hassle for passengers. But I think they actually have two in the air right now from Joburg up to London. So that's a uh, a lot of people to be moved. I mean, just really unfortunate looking at the diversion point, especially for the, the BAA 380, where they they made it basically to the border and were told, no, sorry. No, go away. And had the airspace been closed, maybe let's say eight hours earlier, they could have probably just fueled up with a, a little sure. extra fuel and gone sure. around the long way, which is what they're doing today. They're, they're basically flying off the western coast of Africa and headed. It's a longer flight, but they're able to do that nonstop, but only because they're prepared to do that with maybe a combination of maximum fuel for the aircraft and maybe even some weight restrictions, not as much cargo or not as many passengers. Don't know that, but I wouldn't be surprised. We'll have to ask our A380 pilot friends to, to understand. I would assume that the aircraft can, can make that flight, no problem. Yeah, it's only 11 hours. It's not, not an outrageously long flight for that route, actually not even all that much longer than a typical flight, which is about 10 and a half to 11. So sometimes it's even longer than that if, if they're hit by winds. So it's just interesting that it's actually just not that much longer time-wise. But if you're not planning to do it and you're hundreds of miles east of where you now need to be, that's just enough fuel that you don't have to make it happen. The big issue here was that they didn't have the fuel to make that diversion from where they were, which makes sense to me. Yeah, hopefully this is not a long-term closure because the airspace up there in, in Northern Africa is looking quite consolidated in an unfortunate way these days. Not good. Not good at all. Speaking of not good, Jason, the NTSB released its final report on the incident in Boston in February when a Learjet 60 departed without clearance in front of a landing JetBlue E190. And the we didn't learn a whole lot more from the final report. There was no mitigating factors that, that made this make more sense. It was just the Lear 60 didn't listen to the controller and departed without clearance as the E190 was coming in. 
what we did learn was just how close those aircraft came. Well, we knew how close they came in an intellectual way. We had the data. What we have now is a still photograph taken from a video that the jump seat occupant of the E-190 was filming that shows the Lear crossing in front of the flight deck. And wow, is it close. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's only a still frame from a video, which I'm sure we will never be able to see the video because they'd probably have to bleep the whole audio out of it. I I can imagine the the words being said are probably not suitable for this particular Certainly not this podcast. No, but I would really like to see that video. And again, kudos to the the JetBlue crew and and especially the uh, third occupant in the jump seat for taking the the very valuable video that we now got that still frame out of because it's one thing to know an event happened, but it's another entirely to see it. It reminds me kind of the Air Canada incident in, in San Francisco a few years ago where, yeah, we knew something bad happened, but when the video came out, it was a whole other level of comprehension of just how close things really were. And in this case, it was a, a bit too close for anyone's comfort, especially if you're the jump seater in that E-190. You know, the, the, the Reddit thing, praise the cameraman in this case for, for keeping the camera on the target there because it makes a hell of a still frame. Yeah. I mean, it's just incredible. And the link is in the show notes, obviously. Please go look at it and then change pants as necessary after you examine this particular photograph. And yeah, like Jason said, I doubt we'll ever see the video now that it's gone the way of an NTSB investigation. Certainly it's locked away in a vault somewhere, but but we'll, we'll see. The FAA is warning of a very particular issue on the engines that power the 737 MAX. So the Leap 1B engine may or may not depending on a set of very specific conditions, have a problem with overheating the engine inlet while using the anti-icing feature in dry weather. If you do that in a very specific set of circumstances, it could blow the inlet away from the plane. Yes. And as this report from AP says, we've seen what happens when there's uncontained failures of the engine like that. Though I don't even know if this would be a uncontained failure because it's not a part of the the engine itself, I guess, the the, the interior of the engine. It's the inlet, but it could, of course, cause decompression and a hazard to passengers inside the aircraft if it pierces the, the airframe or the windows, which we saw with the Southwest accident a few years ago. Not great. It seems that there is no proof that this has ever happened in the lifespan of the 7.3 Max so far, which is good, but it could happen, and it's having a material impact on the certification of the MAX 7 and MAX 10, which the latter of which, uh, according to the John Ostrowski Air Current, is not expected before the middle of 2024 now, potentially, or in part at least due to this safety issue. Things keep piling up for the certification timeline of that aircraft. Yeah. So as Jason mentioned, this has never happened in flight. This particular issue was discovered during testing. And it happens in a very specific set of circumstances, but it's a serious enough problem that the FAA issued an airworthiness directive with a 15-day effective window. So normally, for these types of things, there's a window of public comment where the manufacturer, airlines, maintenance personnel, operators, Jason, you or I, anybody can make a public comment to the government 
in support of the changes or criticizing the changes or suggesting modifications, which airlines often do when they are tasked with an airworthiness directive that will affect their operations. They'll often suggest specifications, corrections, modifications that either they think make more sense for their operations or clarify things so that they're not doing work unnecessarily or so that they know that they're doing the right work. This one goes into effect 15 days after publication. There is no 90-day public comment period. 15 days after publication, it is in effect. So the FAA is seemingly taking this very seriously. Which is good. I guess this is a good thing that this has never been experienced in operation and the FAA is ensuring that hopefully it never will happen in operation. Uh, It wouldn't make much sense to leave time for public comment here. Really don't need anyone commenting in the the Federal Register. You know what? I don't like this. I I think we should let the engine explode. That would be a a weird take on the situation. (laughs) I wouldn't put it past somebody though. We did an episode a while ago and and I'll see if I can go back and, and find that. Maybe we'll put that in clip for next week. But we talked about the some of the more interesting public comments that are received anytime there's a public comment period. Public comment on anything in that regard. It's not just on, on aviation stuff or aircraft stuff. Public comment on anything is generally yeah. awful. Just <laughs> terrible. Low quality, shall we say. Quantity over quality in essence. Sticking with the 737 MAX, we have for the first time, as first reported by Dominic Gates at the Seattle Times, a breakdown of the 737 MAX order backlog. And I'm not blown away by it, but I'm a little surprised by how these things break down. Jason, what was your take on it? My take is finally, I don't know why (laughs) Boeing has always been so cagey about this stuff when Airbus every month lists, lists exactly what the orders and deliveries are by type. It doesn't just say A320. It tells you whether it's an A320 Neo, A321 CO, A321 LR, whatever. Even, you know, an A318 is still listed. So I am not shocked that, of course, most orders are, are for the 737 MAX 8. A little surprised that the, the, the 9 is like a rounding error. Yeah, that's what I was taking a look 3%, at. 3%, just the, well, in the backlog, at least. They're, I'm pretty sure United has as many aircraft in operation as there are in the backlog, but just 137 MAX 9s in the backlog, as opposed to 810 of the MAX 10 combined with how many more is this 344 of the max 8200 which is the higher capacity version of the max 8 and then even the 700 has more orders which i think is just like a united sorry a southwest specific variant at this point someone at united just went what what when did we (laughs) order that but hey they have a lot of 700 ngs so maybe one day. But yeah, the Dash 9, I wouldn't have thought, given the success of the 900ER, that the direct replacement for it would be such a, I don't even know what to call it. It's not a failure, but just a not success, I guess. I guess what I'm thinking about here is, you know, if it's the thing from Contact where where the guy goes, you know, if, if you're going to, why not build two for twice the price? If you're going to take a nine, why not take a 10? Sure. If it's ever and get certified more and can operate. Notwithstanding that concern, a separate question, but yeah. just you know, yeah, thinking yeah, not, about now that, that there is a larger version. version of the seven three, I, I guess that makes sense. But it's just surprising to see that the nine hundred ER, which is such a, a popular aircraft, especially here in the U.S. with United and Delta, 
having hundreds of them. But I guess thinking outside of North America, it's not really that big a success, is it? Lion Air? Lion Air, KLM. I honestly can't think of that many more airlines that operate the 900 ER. Forget the, the non-ER version. I think that's solely United and Alaska operating the, the non-ER variant of the 900. But yeah, I, I guess come to think of it, there aren't that many 900 ERs out there today. And the, the MAX 10, although it is not available at the moment, just makes more sense. doesn't cost that much more to operate it probably. And you could almost certainly offset that with extra seats. Yeah. Let's stick with Boeing, shall we? Sure. More good news? I don't know if this is necessarily good news or or just news. Boeing has decided to stretch the 777-8's fuselage, the passenger version, to match the freight version's fuselage length. So they're adding three and a half feet to the passenger version of the 777-8 fuselage to make it the same as the freight one. This bumps the passenger capacity up in a two-class configuration to 395 and increases the range to 8,750 nautical miles up from 8,730. And so I think we can call it unloved. I mean, they have two dozen orders for the Dash 8. Yeah, I'm actually trying to look up who has those orders now. I think it is Emirates, maybe. And Emirates. Yeah, not that popular of an aircraft. And this was supposed to be the the direct replacement for the 300ER, the current airframe that's, I guess, no longer really in production. Everybody's going bigger. So 300 orders. Seemingly very common thread between the the topic we just discussed with the 7.3 and the the 777X here. Again, unfortunately, this aircraft is not yet certified and ready to go maybe maybe next year but yeah nobody really wants to take these smaller aircraft and they're not small <laughs> no i mean it, it is large but in the grand scheme of things it is the smaller version of the aircraft and yeah it makes sense i guess this way i, I haven't really read up on this topic but i guess it lets them have a common fuselage for both the dash eight and the freighter so or at least the common length so that that just makes sense and makes makes you wonder why it wasn't the plan the whole time I'm still trying to figure out why it was a different length in the first place, and I haven't been able to find that, and that gives me something to do the rest of the week, and hopefully put it in the show notes by the time the show comes out on Friday, because somebody's going to ask that same question, and we should have an answer for it. Let us move on from Boeing and talk about a few low-cost airlines that are pretty much in similar boats, but not quite the same boat. We'll start with Spirit, which... After reporting their second quarter earnings, or first half earnings really, being hit by a triple whammy of changes in demand, summer weather and air traffic control unfortunateness, and then the Pratt & Whitney geared turbofan recall, they did not have a good second quarter. So the changes in demand are one that we've talked about a little bit before, but the second quarter really became apparent because multiple airlines are talking about this. Spirit really impacted by the fact that people who are flying are choosing to fly further this year or specifically this summer. JetBlue had said the same thing as well. Yeah, exactly. Last summer, I think one of the big issues was people weren't really you know, super ready to travel that far afield. People that would normally, you know, fly Spirit domestically weren't 
necessarily ready to travel that far afield. But also, Europe was such a disaster as far as being able to actually fly there without you know your travel plans being severely disrupted by you know staff shortages long lines missed flights etc that you know it wasn't really a that big of a deal last year but this year people are saying yeah we'll we'll go to europe we'll fly instead of flying to florida we'll fly to europe yeah even uh, amsterdam seems to have figured its stuff out and i haven't seen really any images or, or videos out of europe this year where lines are just 5 hours long so things are at least right now pretty stable Lessons were learned and, and actions were taken. And so Spirit, you know, it sees a large hole where they thought they were going to see see more passengers. Their load factor was down to 82%, down from 89% last year. So kind of a uh, a significant drop, but they're forecasting that things will swing back after the summer ends to a more normalized- Not great though for a no. US airline to be reporting a not great summer season because this is the season uh, aside from the, the holidays at the end of the year. Uh, if you're not carrying a good amount of passengers right now, you're, you're in trouble because your, your full year profit is, is going to be- in question. And one of the factors accompanying that drop in demand has been weather. So storms either causing cancellations and delays or just rerouting around them, but then also dealing with the air traffic control staffing shortages and traffic implementations that have gone along with that. And Spirit heavily focused on Florida is certainly impacted a lot by traffic initiatives from the FAA. So a big hit there. And then they've got seven planes that are going to be affected by the Pratt & Whitney Gear Turbofan recall. They're going to have those out from Labor Day. So they're keeping them in service at least through Labor Day to, to try and maximize their, their time on the wing. And then they said they will likely be out through the rest of the year. Ouch. That's a long time. It seems like Spirits also had a little chunk of its fleet out of service at any given time for a long time. If you if you fly through Detroit or yeah. Fort Lauderdale, you're bound to see some very yellow engineless aircraft. And then they've always managed to keep their fleet not impacted by this, but that's a long time for some aircraft to be out of service. But they've been dealing with this for, for years. So nothing new for them. And Frontier Airlines is, I said, in a similar boat. Thankfully for them, they're not in the same boat because it sounds like they're going to be spared any of the recall headaches that other A320neo operators are experiencing because Frontier didn't start taking their A320neos until after the bad batch of metal had been used up. So their aircraft are new enough, their engines are new enough that they don't have to worry about this particular issue. But they do have to worry about flying into congested airspace. And because they have to worry about that, and because all of the other airlines flying into New York especially have to worry about that, the FAA has extended the slot waiver, the emergency, please don't fly and make it easy for us to do our jobs, waivers through the end of October. Jason, what is going on in New York? I'm holding you personally responsible. It's summer. Nothing's going on here. But yeah, this is not great. We thought this would be a temporary thing through the peak summer demand. But if it's extended through the end of October, this really feels like it's going to be more of a semi-permanent kind of thing until the FAA gets its staffing up in, in New York Center a bit higher. But that could take 
years. And just this week, Cranky Fire, Brett Snyder, who we've had on the podcast before, put together a look at the July operation for US airlines. And if you are an airline that so much as touches Northeast airspace, you had a bad July. Specifically, JetBlue is like barely an airline anymore. They're more of just a company that happens to have airplanes that can sometimes fly places. 94.36% completion factor. That's not on time. That's completion factor. So nearly 6% of all JetBlue flights in July did not operate. United was a 95.62 since Newark just kind of melted down anytime there was a cloud somewhere in the Northeast. And then it jumps all the way up to Alaska at 99.65%. Quite a tame year in the Pacific Northwest, it seems. But then when you look at on-time arrival, that's A14, arrivals within 14 minutes of scheduled time. JetBlue is down at 49.58% of flights arriving on time. And Spirit's not that much better at 61.31. And again, Alaska all the way above 80%, which is pretty remarkable. So really not great for any of the airlines heavily focused in the Northeast, of which JetBlue is. Spirit has a sizable amount of operations here, but just really not looking good for us here in New York or anyone in the Northeast with the staffing issues the FAA has had in New York. Doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon, or at least not through October 28th, at least. I mean, just it boggles my mind that I mean, we're going to be starting November with airlines having to fly their full schedule. I mean, an already reduced schedule. I mean, just what a mess. It's not great. And we can see the material impact anytime there's any sort of, not even large weather event, anytime there's weather at all, the airports here, especially Newark and LaGuardia, JFK seems to fare a bit better. But anytime at those two airports, if there's any sort of weather in the Northeast, they just grind to a halt. The FAA can't manage these flights appropriately. They can't issue reroutes around storms and everything backs up and it backs up across the entire country and then entire airline operations just fall over. It's going to get worse before it gets better, which is not something you want to hear as an airline passenger here in the Northeast, but something's got to give and apparently that's that 10% of flights continually for the foreseeable future. As we talked about a few episodes ago, this was a possibility and has now come to pass. Western Global Airlines, the charter cargo carrier, has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. They say that a combination of factors led to their filing, including the resurgence of belly cargo and the closure of the Chinese market in late 2022 and early 2023 with a resurgence of COVID, as well as a bunch of other things. Reading their bankruptcy filing protection makes them sound like they are subject to external forces only and through no fault of their own have come to this position that they are in. I think looking at the airline one would say that's a rosy vision of what happened. There's also been a lot of criticism about the airline's decisions and management that have put them in this particular position. But now that they've filed for Chapter 11, it'll be interesting to see what happens. A few episodes ago, we talked about Western Global's CEO, Jim Neff, who through some financial maneuvering, put himself at the forefront of the creditor's 
for the airline by buying a large portion of the airline's debt so that if they went through bankruptcy, he would be at the head of the line for repayment. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, we sure will. Uh, wouldn't be great to see an airline, as strange an airline as it is, being Western Global. Would hate to see them cease operation. But they're not all that old an airline, right? Didn't it just start up like five years ago? They're a little older than that. But yeah, they're not terribly old. They've had some very interesting customers and carried some very interesting cargo over their history. They continue to operate. They are continuing to operate, operating their normal schedule, but they're trying to restructure their debt as well as, you know, kind of unwind some of the less beneficial business interactions they have. Should we say that? We'll say that. Why not? So we'll see how that goes as far as their bankruptcy protection goes and see what the restructuring plan is. It'll be interesting to see how long these MD-11s stick around, which is really the aviation angle that I'm concerned with here because they're they're going away fast. We know that they can operate for as long as they can toss money at them for. Any aircraft can last forever as long as you keep it maintained, but they have – Two triple seven freighters on order. Who knows if that'll ever happen? But they also have a couple of seven four sevens, so they're not wholly reliant on the MD eleven. But that by far is the bulk of their fleet. Let's go from very old aircraft to very new aircraft because Mongolian Airlines is getting its first seven eight seven soon. Yay! And I'm excited great. about this. Wasn't this supposed to happen a long time ago? It was. It was supposed to happen basically at the beginning of the pandemic. And then all sorts of other things happened. You may have remembered a thing called COVID. That derailed a whole bunch of plans. But now they're back on track. They're going to be sending their 787s to Frankfurt, Seoul, and Istanbul first. But the Mongolian delegation came to the US this week and express their interest in flying to the US as soon as the second half of 2024 with their new 787s. And it sounds like San Francisco is going to be where that particular aircraft goes. So if you're spotting it SFO, be on the lookout for that particular airplane late next year. Well, here's an interesting fact. According yes, to planespotters.net, at least the first aircraft that should be taken by Mongolian, you may recall from not all that long ago as being the Guest of honor of Boeing at the Paris Air Show, the Riyadh Air 787. Yeah, it was a- Once upon a time in Mongolian livery, and then it sat around a while, then somehow became a Riyadh Air aircraft with that very nice livery. But I guess that was just really a publicity stunt because that aircraft is going back to Mongolia. Correct. And Mm. they're not starting operations for another two years. So they don't really need that plane putting around. That's an expensive temporary paint job. You know what? I don't even know if it was painted or if it was, you think it was a, sticker? a I think it was a full wrap. I think so. Really? I mean, that would make me feel a little bit better about it, I guess. Or did they paint it? I don't know. I have to go back and check. Did they do know. a video of the Riyadh Air painting? I don't know if they did. I don't know. But yeah. some aircraft wraps can be so well done that you would never even know it's not actual paint. Well, the Dubai Air Show, 2019 Dubai Air Show, I want to say was the remember that purple and pink livery that they had on the 787 mm-hmm. of course that was the world's i think we talked about this at the time that was the world's largest aircraft wrap at the time 
Hmm. So I don't know if this was painted. They have a picture in the paint hanger. I was just looking at that. I think it was paint. But they don't have a video of the painting. I think it was so, paint. There's, I don't know if I've seen a, a wrap on parts like the rudder before. So I, I'd be kind of surprised if it's a wrap, but wouldn't you can do it. You I guess you it. could do it. If you have enough time and the high quality parts to do it, you could make it happen. You can do whatever you want, Jason. I believe in you. Mm-hmm. All right. We've been kicking this one around outside of the show, and I still don't understand it. So, Jason, give me your best shot. Explain what is going on with Air Japan. Oh, man, what is that, it, that, and why is it not what I thought it was? That's unexplainable. Let's just move on. <laughs> okay. So, ANA, based in Japan, has – I guess you can't call it a subcarrier, but it, it is, I guess, a subcarrier of its own brand called Air Japan, which to the end user, to the passenger, didn't actually exist. It was just ANA flights, ANA branded aircraft, ANA branded service. You would never know you were on an Air Japan aircraft. It's kind of like a regional airline here in the US where you're boarding a SkyWest aircraft or whatever, or an Endeavor Air aircraft actually operating for Delta and Unless you really know what to look for, you'd never know it wasn't actually Delta aircraft. It was kind of the same here for Air Japan. Historically operated 7.6s and later on 7.8.7s for near-in international. So not long-haul international, but also not domestic. But now ANA wants like, to compete with JAL's low-cost long-haul zip air operation, and it's tapped Air Japan to do that. So it's going to be a little confusing. Now there's actually a brand called Air Japan, which you'll have to know about and overtly go book yourself. I don't know if ANA is selling it. So you can book an Air Japan flight, but only if it's the actual Air Japan branded flights. And you'll be able to start doing that as of February 9th of next year on the Narita to Bangkok line. So that's exciting. But isn't Zipair long, long haul? Low cost? It is long, long haul, low cost, but I guess you got to start somewhere, right? I mean, yeah, okay. That's, yeah. that's fair. But I guess I'm surprised because it's not like they're a new airline. No. It's not like they don't know what they're doing. In the case of Zip Air, that was a new sub-brand of JAL that did not exist prior. In this case, ANA has just tapped its own sub-brand Air Japan to operate now under its own name, Air Japan, and depending apparently on the destination, the call sign of the airline is either Air Japan or not. It's very confusing, but it looks interesting. It's 78-8s, which is interesting because I'm pretty sure the rest of the Air Japan fleet is dash nines, so this would be unique. But it looks like a very acceptable product for a low-cost long haul. If you've ever flown Scoot, you will certainly recognize the theme here, but it's all economy. There's no premium or even extra legroom economy, really. This is just straight up from first row to the last row of the aircraft economy, whereas Zip Air, operating for JAL, actually does have a pretty nice but bare bones business class, but you will not be finding that on Air Japan unless you're on an Air Japan flight operating as ANA. Got it? Crystal clear. Mm-hmm. Clear as Absolutely. mud. Absolutely. Clear as mud. Okay. We're at the end of the show, and we saved the best for last. This was last week at this point. There were some images circulating on the socials media showing the box of a new Lego set. Oh, this this is definitely piquing your interest. I thought to myself, hmm, that looks like the Concorde. And my friends, 
it was. Lego confirmed this week that a Concord Lego set is coming. Rumors say, and they haven't confirmed this part, rumors say that it will be out in September and the price point is about $200. I hope both of those things are true because I am in a very much shut up and take my money mode. I really want this. It looks cool. I want it now. And if I can't have it now, I want it in a month. All right. Well, that's good news. I mean, Lego Concords are cool, but Brooklyn's getting a real Concord, at least for a little bit. Look at you. Yeah. It turns out the Intrepid Museum on the west side of Manhattan here wants to rehab or do something with its Concord, which it can't do on site. So it is barging it over here to Brooklyn, the, the Navy Yard, for I think the rest of the year, at least through the summer, for some maintenance work. So I'm going to ride a city bike on down to the Brooklyn Navy Yard and go see a real Concord. And maybe on the way back, I'll pick up a Lego Concord. You should commemorate like a landscape painting. Go build the Lego Concord while looking at the real one on a bar. Ah, yeah. The security will kick me out real quick if I do that. <laughs> I'm sure it would be just fine. All right. Episode 228 of Avtalk. Just a reminder that this is a fresh episode, but next week's will not be. I'm on vacation. Jason's doing something. I don't know, but he'll figure it out. I don't He's know how to record the podcast without you, so there won't be a <laughs> podcast. So we'll have something out, kind of looking back at, at some of the things that we've done so far this year and, and looking forward to some of the things that we want to do through the rest of the year and into next year. So stay tuned for that next week. But until then, I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.